You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're listening to another well-traveled episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and I'm fresh back from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I went for the UFC on FX5. And between travel and having an infant, I feel as though I've slept about two of the last 48 hours. So I guess what I'm saying is that anything could happen on this episode. Alongside me, as always, the other co-co-host of the co-main event podcast, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. As I look at him now, it seems to me that he's still trying to shake off the Kansas City hangover. It's Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I mean, you know, how are you going to keep me down on the farm once I've seen Kansas City? Every, everything else just kind of is like a, a dim gray version of itself. I've heard once you go Kansas City, you never go back. Yeah. Or wait, no, that didn't come out right. (laughs) No, you know, that works too, actually. Uh, I don't have an infant, but I I do feel like I am suffering from the same lack of sleep because I did that always fun thing where when you go to bed late after an event and then you have a really early flight the next morning and you wake up every 20 minutes absolutely certain that you have missed your flight um, and then, you know, repeat it all night long so it feels like you got no restful sleep at all. I did that. I did that uh, too, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how to stop that. If anybody out there has a, you know, a newsletter or a, a special magic pill that solves that problem, you tell me about it. Now, we're going to talk about this later in the show, but uh, you went down to Kansas City to watch the Invicta show I did. this past Pre- weekend. Pretty good little fight card. I, I watched it. It was good. And uh, I, I, I was able to surmise from the way that uh, Mauro Ronaldo mentioned you by name during the main event that there probably wasn't a ton of media there. So what uh, was it? Was it sort of a... Are you, uh, are you saying that if there had been a ton of media, then then I, won't, I don't matter to Moro Ronaldo? No, and, I mean... Moro aren't down? I'm only saying that the context in which he mentioned you was as a media member who uh, was well, there. I didn't hear it because I was at the event, so I didn't listen to the broadcast. But yeah, there was not a ton of media there. Uh, there were not An a ton of people scene, there. intimate scene, you might say. It was intimate, yes. And that's one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about the Invicta experience... Um, not on accident either. They provide the fans with an intimate fight-going experience in many ways. I'm interested to hear more about that. Uh, today's show, as usual, comes to you in three rounds. Uh, in round one this week, Dennis Hallman and Jeremy Stevens both had pretty crappy weekends. Uh, the UFC was forced to handle not one but two crises within about 24 hours of its Friday night FX show. Uh, how it did so, I'm sure, will spark no end to debate. So we will talk about that in round number one. Uh, round number two, the Ballad of Bigfoot Silva. The former elite XC heavyweight champion, former accused steroid cheat, former conqueror of Fedor Emelianenko, and former back-to-back loser at Current the hands Easter Island statue. of Daniel Cormier and Cain Velasquez. Got his first UFC win over the weekend. Uh, are we taking him any more seriously because of it? And then in round three, as teased earlier, Invicta FC put on another solid card this weekend. At this point, do you think the UFC brass are all sitting around look at each, looking at each other like, fuck, man, are we really going to have to buy this company too? <laughs> we'll talk about all that, plus Master Tweet Theater, plus the triumphant return of tips for a well-rounded fight fan, plus just saying stuff. But first, as always, it's time for listener mail. This week's first question comes from us from Ryan Mahan. 
who says, I saw King Mo make his debut on TNA Wrestling last week, and it made me wonder who is getting more out of this cross-promotion. Between the two companies, I'm not sure who has the stronger brand or whether Mo's low level of celebrity will make any impact on either show. Are TNA, Bellator, and Spike expecting too much for him? Well, I can tell you straight away that the company with the stronger brand is TNA, and uh, the company that is getting more out of the promotion, at least to begin, is Bellator, because way, way, way more people People watch TNA Impact on Spike TV than watch any of Bellator's programming on, on MTV2 or otherwise. So, And I assume that a good portion of those people this week when uh, two TNA Impact stars, James Storm and Bobby Roode, both referred to Bellator by name on the show, probably thought to themselves, what the fuck is a Bellator? <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know. Ben, what, what, what do you think? You were hanging out with Mo this week, right? I After- was, yeah. I hung out with Mo a little bit on Friday night, the night before the Invicta, the Invicta Fights event. Uh, and, you know, Mo's a good guy. I like hanging out with him. We were talking a lot about the pro wrestling stuff because he had just, you know, he had made his appearance on Thursday night and then the very next night we were sitting down. And while we were sitting there talking, uh, wouldn't you know it, as soon as he's officially a pro wrestler who's been on a pro wrestling show... Some dude wearing a fanny pack comes up to him in the hotel bar and tells him, hey, man, I liked your spot last night. So it just happens immediately. Wow. The pro wrestling fans just swarm on him. So this guy, he didn't appear to be one of Mola Wall's peers as a pro wrestler. He appeared to be a fan. Yes. Yo, he was definitely but not still a, wearing a fanny pack. Of course, of course, that, still wearing a fanny pack. That is dedication. And telling Mo how he liked a spot. So I, I mean, that's just your new life once you become a pro wrestler. I guess it's tough for me to tell uh, how many of the the TNA crowd really know what who Mo is. If yeah. they have any idea, one of the things he mentioned to me that I thought was interesting because I was like, hey, did you have a little lot of nerves? I mean, this is a guy. You know, he's wrestled at a really high level for a long time, like, you know, real, real wrestling, then fought in front of some, some pretty big crowds and some pretty big fights. And I was curious, you know, how he felt, because I know he's a huge pro wrestling fan, like if, if that part made him nervous. And he was saying that he was really worried that he was going to be like Glacier in the WCW because he remembered watching for months them teasing, Glacier's coming, Glacier. And he was like, yeah. And then when Glacier walked out, it was just... A white dude dressed like Sub-Zero doing katas and shitty karate kicks. And everybody was like, what is this? This sucks. And so he was really concerned that after they teased his, his appearance, he was going to end up being one of those dudes. Uh, I think he avoided that uh, based on what I saw on the TNA thing. Um, but I can also see why the same guy who described himself as a money weight at times uh, would just be like, hey... I don't care what any of you think about this this crossover stuff, whether you think it's good for an MMA fighter to be doing pro wrestling, this is a way to get paid. Uh, so it, it makes sense to me why, and you know he's a huge pro wrestling fan, so it makes sense to me why he'd want to do this. Yeah, I'm inter- interested to see how he does. Obviously, the two sports, I guess, if you want to use the term sort of loosely in terms of professional wrestling, sports entertainment, uh, they're two entirely different things. Uh, you know, a guy like Kurt Angle obviously made a, a, a really good transition from uh, amateur wrestling to professional wrestling, but, but you can never tell. You can never tell how a guy's skills are going to translate. So it'll be interesting, I think, to see how he comes across on that show. I think what's going to be interesting is, you know, two years, two, three years down the road, let's say Mo has a lot of success in pro wrestling and, you know, makes himself a good little bit of money doing it. How many other MMA fighters might start to look at that and think, maybe this is something to go into. Maybe this is something to think about. I, I mean, I think a lot of people are probably going to be watching to see how this, the, tr- the career trajectory of this goes for him. 
and maybe making some decisions because you know you you can do that stuff for a lot longer than you can stay at the elite level with MMA you know True. as long as you're likable and your body holds up well enough to keep dragging it out there night after night as long as you don't mind getting your neck fused yeah. after a couple of years as long as you know you don't the, the risks of becoming a, a pill popping drug addict don't scare you away then uh, you, you know I can see how it could be attractive to some guys so I think a lot of people are going to be watching to see where that goes the second question this week comes from Noah Schaefer and it's kind of a long one so bear with me uh, Dan Hardy and Brett Rogers recently being in the news got me musing on the quality of losing. That's a nice oh, little rhyme there. Yeah, all right. Well done. Uh, that is to say that I tend to judge a fighter's losses on a graded scale. After all, Hardy being decisioned by the current champ, then KO'd by the current interim cough, bullshit cough champ. Then You're not even going to do the actual cough? No, man. Okay. Come on. Then, who am I? Sir Nigel Longstock? <laughs> Apparently not. Then manhandled by current lightweight Rumble jo- light heavyweight uh, L- Rumble Johnson, and finally beaten in a relatively competitive fight against should-be legend Chris Lytle are certainly not signs of complete worthlessness in my book. Similarly, Rogers' competitive fight with Fedor and losses to veteran greats like Uberim and Barnett didn't lower his stock much, although the way he handled the pressure of his losses was obviously less than impressive. I guess what I'm saying is, shouldn't we as a collective MMA fan base cut clearly great or at least good fighters on losing streaks some slack? Fedor's three-fight losing streak didn't leave me thinking he was any less of a badass, only that his opponents were pretty badass. Uh, I agree with this in principle, although I think that Fedor Emelianenko is kind of a bad example here because his three-fight losing streak clearly was uh, detrimental to the the aura and sort of legend that he had built up over the the previous decade of being undefeated. But in a in a more general and like broader sense, I do think that wins and losses, while in theory the the point of of the sport. Are, you have to take them all with a little bit of a grain of, grain of salt in MMA just because the, the sport itself is so diverse and kind of nuanced and there's so many different ways to lose that the old adage, the cliche, I guess, at this point is that everybody loses and it's kind of true. So, yeah, I kind of agree with the sentiment that just because someone goes out and loses a couple of fights in a row, it doesn't necessarily seem like they're washed up. And I feel like one of the bad habits that we do have as fans is is when a guy loses kind of throwing up our hands, like I've said before, and being like, oh, I can't believe we ever thought this guy was good. But I think so much of it, like the examples that he cites, so much of it has to do with what we know in hindsight. True. Because it is one of those things where it's tough sometimes to remember. You know, you, you go out and you lose to a guy, and, you know, if that guy then later goes on and, and wins two or three in a row. Like, remember when Junior Dos Santos came into the UFC and knocked out Fabricio Verdum? Yeah. And it was, he was a huge underdog. And at the time, it was like, oh, man, what the fuck, Bear Doom? Like, he really went out there and you screwed up. Maybe you took this guy too lightly, whatever. Now you look back on it, that doesn't look so bad anymore, no. n- knowing what we know about Junior Dos Santos. So I think it's a lot easier to do that when we get a, a fuller picture. And I remember talking to Brendan Schaub after he got knocked out by Noguera in Brazil. And we were in the airport in Rio. And he, was sent, he made a, a comment about how I kind of hope Noguera goes on a a little bit of a winning streak here because he knows how that works, that, that then it won't look so bad to fans. Because if Noguera turns around and loses his next five and has to retire in shame, then 
you know, you were the one dude he was able to knock out in the twilight of his career, and people will look at it a lot differently. So you don't ever know until we get a little farther along how that stuff is going to look. And I think it's, you can make the same kind of argument with Fedor, where it depends what people are chalking up the losses to. Like with Fedor, it was like, well, we're going to say, you know, career ended via falling off, basically, <laughs> all at once. Uh, and because those losses came all at once, that did make it seem less, I think, like Fedor... Uh, was a myth to begin with and more like well he held on for a long time and then it just all kind of cut up with him all at once there uh third question this week comes from jonas nasland who asks i want to hear your thoughts on ring girls in our sport do we need them why are they there who are they there for please discuss uh i'm not sure how much i have to say i don't I'm kind of with Jonas on this one. I think that there are, you know, there does appear to be a, a, a percentage of the fan base in MMA that appears to be like weirdly into the ring girls, like weirdly preoccupied by them. But it's, it's, I don't fully get it. And, and uh, I don't know if you do, I don't know if you have anything to add. I don't think we need them. I don't think there's anybody who's like, Oh, what, there's no ring girls? Well, I'm not buying a ticket to this one. I'm not buying the pay-per-view. I think especially it's hard to sell people on like the appeal of a girl walking around in a bikini holding up uh, the ring card girl sign when, you know, the round sign when, I mean, if I want to see attractive women in st- various states of undress, I feel like the internet is a pretty good resource for that. I know where to go for that if that's what I want. Well, I, don't, I don't need Wait that. a second. Back up. <laughs> well, I'll tell you about it later. Uh I don't need that, you know, I, I like attractive women as much as anybody, but I don't need that mixed into everything. And especially, it is weird to see people, like, be interested in them since you don't know anything about them. It's not like not like they're doing anything. They're really just walking around in a bikini. It's not, like, I can't remember where this was, but I think it was like a video from, like, a, a MMA match in Mexico or something, where in between rounds... Uh, the ring girls like did a dance routine. It's like, Ooh. okay, well then at least they have to have some kind of talent and yeah. something. Yeah. And that's that's a start. That's more than Ariane Celeste has to do. Who knows if Ariane Celeste can dance? We know she sure as shit can't sing. Whoa, snap! But I, that's why it is weird to me to see why people care. Like, why don't you just pick some you know internet bikini model and get really into her if you're really just looking for some pretty girl to become. Uh, creepily interested in from a distance now but yeah and i would say even weirder than like the people who are really really kind of obsessed and preoccupied with the ring girls weirder that people like ariani celeste and rochelle leah and Brittany palmer have been able to like fashion some kind of side celebrity for themselves yeah. off being ring girls it's very strange well, what i wonder is what is are there ever any moments where they're at home and they realize oh wait a minute all this like celebrity and this some kind of semblance of a career is really based on not very much. Like not very much at all. Does it ever throw them into some kind of existential panic? Like what is my life about? No, dude. Come on. <laughs> existential panic? Are yeah, you serious? Okay. All right. Yeah, no, that was a stupid question. Anyway, that is listener mail for this week. If you have a question for the podcast, a comment, a concern, uh, you can go ahead and hit us up by going to the website, comaineventpodcast.com. Click, click the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast, and you can get in touch with us that way. As for right now, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast with Chad Dundas and Ben Folks. We'll be back with round number one in just mere moments. Round one. 
Well, with apologies to the stuff that actually happened inside the cage this weekend at the UFC on FX5, I think we all know that the real story of the weekend was Jeremy Stevens' arrest on a year-old felony assault warrant just hours before he was set to take on Eve Edwards on the Fuel TV undercard. Uh, the fact that his ultimate expulsion from the card came just one day after Dennis Hallman was paid, cut, and sent home after failing to make weight at 155 pounds for the second straight time only sort of added insult to injury. Ben, what the fuck is going on? It seems like the injury curse is now spreading to other uh, various methods of get, making sure that guys don't fight. Are we just yeah. going to have to call the whole sport off at this point? Or like, what's the we're deal? at least going to have to amend it so that it's not injury curse anymore. It's just curse. Like after this, it's going to be like the assassination curse or something where guys are getting picked off from like long range rifle shots. You know, what did Dana White do? Did he unearth some amulet or something that he wasn't <laughs> supposed to touch? Did he go and fuck around with a mummy's tomb or something? I heard that the UFC headquarters is built on top of an Indian burial ground <laughs> in Las Vegas. You know, that wouldn't surprise me now. That's like that thing Dana's always saying about how bad shit happens every time he puts his feet on the floor in the morning. Yeah. It's really starting to look like it now. I mean, Jesus Christ. That is some, some rough stuff to deal with on top of the normal... You know, guys getting injured left and right and having to pull out a fight stuff. Now you got to get on the phone and try and bail Jeremy Stevens out in order to get him in there in the cage in time. Yeah, let's talk first, I guess, just about Jeremy Stevens. It seems like the the juicier topic. Uh, it was one that that certainly caused the more turmoil of the two uh, stories, especially on Twitter the day of the fight. Um, you know, and, and as far as I'm concerned, in the case of Stevens, I think you're dealing with two kind of separate issues. I think that there's the issue of whether or not the UFC should have been so gung-ho about the idea of him fighting sort of straight from jail, almost Tank yeah. Abbott style. <laughs> uh, and uh, then I think you have the completely separate issue of how it was handled, you know, the public disclosure of the company's intentions. Um, you know, as usual, the, the, it happened on Twitter you know, the UFC has has for a long time now had a real hard on for Twitter uh, and and sometimes I think for for good and sometimes for bad. And I think in this kind of public relations case, uh, you know, I don't think it was the best thing to use just because of the, the nature of the medium. Uh, the messages are so short and there's such a a uh, uh, tendency for like information to get passed second and third hand and for misunderstandings yeah. to happen because I think that's what happened. You lose a lot of context more. Gets yeah. As, on that as we know, Dana kind of, uh, freaked out, I guess, for lack of a better term uh, on the media, because I think what happened was fans read initial reports that Jeremy Stevens was out of the, f or what had been locked up and that, you know, people said that this, the fight was in jeopardy. I think what happened was that those fans then turned to Dana White and said, hey, the media is saying that the fight is off, which as far as I know, no one said. Yeah. But then Dana kind of got all in a tizzy about it. And, and so the idea of whether or not Jeremy Stevens was going to fight became this big thing. It like fanned the flames of the already kind of shitty situation that everybody was in. And I think that like in this situation, if instead of turning to Twitter, like the UFC just would have put out a well-reasoned and well-written press release in the morning after they found out that Jeremy Stevens had been arrested that said something like, hey, 
Jeremy Stevens has been arrested. We are confident that we can get him out. And if we do, he's still going to fight Eve Edwards. But, you know, he's in jail right now. So we're just going to have to wait and see how it turns out. I think if you go that route, then it's not even really that huge of a story when it doesn't happen at the end of the night. Whereas going this way, it kind of made freak it out a on big, Twitter route. It kind of made like it kind of made it a big issue <laughs> that at the end of the night needed a fair amount of explanation. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because I was following along on on this exclusively on Twitter because I was stuck in the Denver airport after a flight delay, tr- still trying to get to Kansas City. So that was kind of like you know just sitting there with my phone and seeing all this stuff pop up and trying to figure out for myself via Twitter uh, what's going on. And that's the weird thing about Twitter. And I think we'll probably talk even more about Twitter when we get down to Invicta uh, because that has to do a lot with their success. But like, since you choose who you follow and who your sources of information are on Twitter, uh, you get to choose your own little world uh, in this weird way. Uh, it's a strange way to, to interact with the world and to interact with, you know, to, to figure out what's going on because it's like, if you choose a bunch of unreliable people to tell you or just a bunch of sensationalist people to tell you what's going on, your view of the world is going to be a crazy sensationalist view. Uh, and if you go just by, hey, here's what people are telling me on Twitter, then you kind of deserve to look like an asshole if you don't end up having all the information at the end of the day. But I think the weird thing is, okay, let's say Jeremy Stevens, okay, we do this whole you know innocent until proven guilty thing. Right. You know, Which you should do yeah. here in America. Well, but let's say, let's take it all the way and let's say, let's say we know for a fact that Jeremy Stevens is being fucked by the Des Moines Police Department here, right, who right. Dan White seems to think has a vast conspiracy just to, just to screw with Jeremy Stevens. Let's say he didn't do anything. Let's say he gets picked up on a totally bullshit assault warrant, totally gets screwed here. They purposely keep him in jail to keep him out of the fight just because the, the long arm of the Des Moines Police Department is so uh, determined to fuck with the poor guy. Yeah. Even in that situation, do you think the UFC should be like, hey, we're doing everything we can to get this guy out of jail on this felony assault warrant so he can come over here and fight, and then we'll rush him right back to jail, we promise. Isn't yeah. that a little weird? I do think that that is weird. I think that that, 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 as, that, that as the end result of the situation is probably something that I don't fully agree with. I will say, though... What I feel like are a couple of positives in defense of the UFC, because I don't feel like this is a situation where I just fully want to rip them. I think, first of all, kind of admirable that Dana White appeared to spend his entire day trying to get Jeremy Stevens out of jail. Like, I'm not sure how many millionaire sports owners, when they find out that a fairly like uh, mid-level member of their organization who wasn't going to make or break this fight card, regardless of whether or not he showed up, I don't know how many millionaire sports owners will themselves immediately go to jail and like try to begin negotiating for his release. The other thing that I that I think I see where they're coming from. I'm not sure that I 100% agree with it, but I see where they're coming from is that I do believe that the UFC's heart at least was in the right place in this instance. I think that they were telling the truth when they said that they just wanted to get Jeremy out of jail so that he could fight and make some money. Um I just don't see the ulterior motive for that. I think sometimes, you know, while we're being critical of the company, we have a tendency to get a little bit sidetracked and to think that the UFC is operating this in, under some kind of conspiracy where they have these ulterior motives for doing things. I don't think that was the case here. Um, you know, the card had already s- suffered from one cancellation of the Hallman fight. But like I said, it wasn't 
going to be made or or broken by whether or not Jeremy Stevens showed up. So I think that they really did want to get him out of jail so that he could get his purse and and have some money for this legal defense that he is apparently going to have to put up. I just think that, you know, it's such a kind of fly by the seat of its pants company and it's such an uncompromising company in terms of its attitude that at times I don't think that the execution of that is flawless, which I think is kind of what happened here. Yeah, I, I agree. It seems like Dana White genuinely believes that Jeremy Stevens is being fucked around here. Uh, and you do have to wonder about if everything Jeremy Stevens' camp says is accurate, that they didn't even know that the, he was being sought in this thing. They wait until the morning of the fight and put the guy in jail. I mean, who knows what's going on with all that? That That is a little weird. Uh, well, here's here's Dana's quote, one of his several quotes about that, that he said at the press conference. He said, they're going to stick it to this kid big time when he gets down to Iowa. They don't like him. They're going to stick it to him. And they rode me out all day playing games with me. People have gone on three state killing sprees and get frickin bailed out of jail. And this kid has got an assault charge in Des Moines, Iowa. He is not going to have fun when he gets there because they've got it out for this kid big time. Who can you name me anybody in the three-state killing spree department who... Uh... No, that that's a little... I, that's hyperbole, I oh, think, okay. is okay. what that is. I see. Yeah, but... Okay. And it, it does... The whole thing does seem weird You can where you go out there and try and bail the guy out. And according to the UFC's account, they just keep changing the situation in order to keep him in jail. Yeah. You know, you do have to wonder what's up with that. I also have to wonder how much of it is... There's this kind of, like subtext it seems to a lot of Dana's remarks about this where it seems almost like uh he's taking it a little personally that Dana White couldn't make this happen you know like that they're well, fucking he did, with I, I can't event. say from being at the press conference he seemed super pissed that he felt that the people the authorities in Iowa made one deal with him that he accepted and then changed it several times over the day. And according to Dana White, every time they changed the deal, he accepted it and accepted it and accepted it until it got to the point where, in his words, he could have got fucking Charles Manson out of jail <laughs> for the money that they wanted him to pay. And he said that he would still do it. And then it kind of seemed like it was sort of unclear whether or not it got to a point that he finally said no or if the people in Iowa were just like, fuck it, we're keeping him in jail. Yeah. So I think that's what he was pissed about. And he admitted at the press conference that because he was so pissed at the people in Iowa, that's really why he kind of went off on Twitter on what he thought were journalists reporting that the fight had been canceled. Yeah, and that's, I guess, a separate issue is is his kind of contentious relationship with the media where he is totally ready to believe that the media are a bunch of fucking assholes trying to mess with them all the time. Uh, I wonder, though, you know, when like you talk about like how this kind of perception comes off with you're trying to get the guy out of jail so he can go get in a cage fight and then you'll put him right back in jail. I mean, yeah. I wonder, because it's, it's like, you know, you sit down, you, you listen to this whole story and you're like, okay, yeah, you know, you want to get the kid an opportunity to make some money and let him have this chance to uh, at least approach whatever's coming next uh, with some resources. At the same time, I don't think that creates a, a very good picture. Uh, hey, this guy's in here on a felony assault charge. Uh, you know, let's let's let him get out here and fight for money so that then he can go and deal with this, you know, fighting for criminality charge. Yeah. It should be noted that, that there are varying tiers of assault charges, you know, and this is not a misdemeanor assault charge. This is a felony assault charge. So we don't know the specifics of it, but that leads you to believe that it was fairly ugly, whatever it was that happened. And like you said, you don't want to assume that, that Jeremy Stevens is guilty. In fact, 
We have we to do quite the opposite. <laughs> we have to assume that, that he is innocent. However, uh, to the by that same accord, like one of the things that Dana was saying during the press conference, he said a couple times was, you know, there are two sides to this story. And Jeremy's side of the story is that he didn't do it. And that and Dana White seems to believe him. Um, and then today, I think the uh, Stevens camp released this statement that says that Jeremy didn't really have anything to do with the assault, that it was, we've been led to believe, I guess, one of his friends who ended up punching this victim. And, and you know, now it's kind of led to this misunderstanding. But the side of the story that we don't know is the victim side of right. the story at this point. So I think, you know, it's innocent until proven guilty and all that, but you do have to sort of like reserve judgment until the, all of the facts come out and you find out what probably the more important side of the story is, and that is the, the person who was assaulted and what injuries they suffered and what the actual story was. Well, and imagine, though, if you did get him out of jail and you rush him in there to fight after he spent the morning in jail sitting around, you know, then you kind of have to put an asterisk around the fight, don't you? I mean, especially if he goes out there and he gets beat by Eve Edwards, then it's like, well, yeah, he lost that fight, but he went from the holding cell to the cage, so cut him some slack there. I mean, the big loser in all this is, is Eve Edwards, who didn't do a goddamn thing wrong, been training for this fight for months. And now, you know, yeah. doesn't get the chance to go out there and do it. Yeah, he got paid, though. Uh, Eve Edwards got paid. Tiago Tavares, who was scheduled to fight. Dennis Holman got paid. Uh, Dennis Holman got paid. And I think that that is probably why, uh, though they didn't come right out and say it, it sounded like the UFC didn't give Jeremy Stevens his purse for this fight. And if I had to guess, I would say it was because they had already paid three guys <laughs> who weren't going to fight on this fight card. Let's talk, before we before we move on, let's talk just a little bit about Dennis Hallman. Uh, I think it's the more cut and dried case. Uh, this is the second time in a row that he's made or missed weight at 155 pounds in the UFC. Um, so I think that they were sort of well within their, their rights to cut him. However, it does also seem a little bit cold-blooded to cut a guy who, well, by everyone's admission, is involved in some kind of personal crisis that we don't know what it is. Well, I think, well, we do know what it is, at least from what he said that it is. Uh, he, I don't know if you saw this, but he went on he did some video interview with Frank Trigg oh. uh, for something I believe called MMA Odds Breaker or something. I did I've, not see I've this. Never... This is breaking news to me well, you know, here on the podcast. It's very exciting for everyone for me to break the news to you. Uh, but I, I watched the video interview. Uh, in it, Dennis Holman says that the personal issues are that uh, his wife has a drug problem. Ah. Um, and that he and his wife's parents were trying to stage an intervention for her. And she got wind of it and uh, was trying to do everything she could to avoid it and to uh, get custody of their child or children. I don't know. I believe they have multiple children, right? I don't know. But That uh, sounds right. His 15-year-old son is an MMA fighter. I watched the video of him kicking some guy's ass on the internet well, this week. Well, there you go. But uh, it sounded like a really bad, you know, a situation where... It does sound bad. Frankly. ...out of his control, you know. So you can understand why maybe cutting weight was not the was foremost concern on his mind. So... Yeah, it, that's a situation where, hey, good on the UFC for giving that guy some money. Exactly, yeah. Show and win bonus, putting him on a plane and sending him home to deal with that stuff. I mean, he's going to need the money to, to deal with that, I'm sure. But, yeah, 60 grand, which yeah. is, you know, a good chunk of change. Yeah, I mean, and that's uh, a situation where, you know, you're glad to see the UFC really taking care of its employees and, and helping the guy out. And, man, and especially when you consider, though, Dennis Hallman's age and where he is in his career, you wonder... This is the last we see of Dennis. Well, Holman. that's what Dana White did say that at the media scrum after the press conference. He said he's not coming back, and he think he he said basically it's essentially because of his age. The guy's thirty six. He's been fighting for so long. He just doesn't. I mean, it kind of felt like this was Dan, uh, uh, Dennis Hallman's kind of 
last tour of duty before retirement anyway. So it, it, you know, Dana White pretty much said he won't be back. And I agree. It's kind of a little bit far-fetched to think that, that Hallman would put together another few wins and then get back into the UFC at age 37 or 38. So well, I don't think you've seen the last of Dennis Hallman fighting. I'm going to tell you that. No, he might I, not be back in the UFC, yeah. but Dennis Hallman seems like one of those dudes who's going to, you know, scrape it out for another 10 years or so if he can, uh, wherever he has to. I, he's just not going to go get a job in a bank, you know? Coming up in round two, we will talk about Antonio Bigfoot Silva's win over Travis Brown in the main event. But first, it's the time that everyone has been asking for on the social media platforms. The return of the world's leading theatricalist, self-proclaimed, Sir Nigel Longstock. He'll be coming in to do Master Tweet Theater, and that starts right now. And now, Master Tweet Theater. And now we welcome back friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am well. Well, we, we're glad that you could join us again. And uh, I know all the listeners out there have been dying for some master tweets. Those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel will uh, theatricalize his way through five separate tweets from someone in the MMA industry. And Chad and I will attempt to guess who the tweeter in question was. So, Nigel, you want to hit us with the first one? Mm, yes, sir. Let us begin. <clears throat> Toy boat. Mm. Radio station just played Call Me Maybe and Gunham style. It's like the DJ is reading my mind. Or a 14-year-old girl's. Chad, you seem like you have some ideas there. I did, but then I, at the end of it there, kind of turned me around. God, it's been so long since we did this. I feel like I'm I'm off my master tweeting game. Is it possible you are afraid, sir? <laughs> that could be. That could be. You know, when in doubt, I'm just going to go with the old standby. I'm going to say Matt Mitrione, and I assume I'm going to be right. I'm going to say Joe Benavides. Both fine guesses, both similar to 14-year-old girls in their mentality. But no, this tweet comes from friend of the podcast, Danny Boy Downs. Oh, Danny Boy Downs again. At Danny Boy Downs. He's sneaky. Yeah, yeah. Should have known that, probably. Yeah. <clears throat> tweet the second. Damn! Just saw a great street fight outside of Walmart. Two old dudes had to save the one poor bastard getting stomped. That, first of all... That was a pretty good damn on your part. I uh, have several. Yeah, I would like to hear that again, actually. <laughs> My Juilliard training is extensive in this area. <clears throat> damn! <laughs> Just saw a great street fight outside of Walmart. Okay. Street fight outside of Walmart indicates a Southerner, I think. Uh, I'm going to say, on that basis alone, Tim Crater. Oh, that's an interesting guess. I am going to go with uh, Jason High here. Oh, okay. Not a bad guess. Both fine guesses, both characteristically wrong. It is, in fact, Stefan Bonner. At Stefan Bonner. Hold up. Stefan Bonner is really out there breaking up Walmart fights? Shopping at Walmart and then enforcing the law at Walmart. <laughs> yes. Wow. No wonder he said UFC 153 will be the greatest moment of his life. <laughs> Zing. <clears throat> All right, gentlemen. This third tweet has been translated from the original Portuguese via Google. Oh, God. That is a hint. So it is most likely a Portuguese fighter or possibly <laughs> a fighter from some other country where they speak that. <laughs> I feel like this sets a, a kind of terrifying precedent, but okay. Let us begin. Tweet the third. We're coming. 
very motivated by the love of Brazilians, the support team, and the energy of Cereal Bar at Quaker Bar. What the fuck are you trying to pull here? Very motivated by the energy of Cereal Bar, sir. So what you're telling me is that you took some Portuguese tweet, you ran it through Google Translator, and you just and this is what you got. That is true. And now you want us to try and guess who it was. Many of the finest works of drama reach us through translation. Well, shit. You know what? I'm going to say Vanderlei Silva. That's a good guess. I feel like the, uh, the tenor of the tweet leads me to believe that it's someone who's fighting at UFC 153, but I don't know who any of those people are. So I am going to guess the person that I know who tweets in Portuguese the most, and that is featherweight champion Jose Aldo. Fine guesses and expert use of deduction. Wrong again. It is damn it. Anderson Silva. Oh, see, that seemed too easy. I wasn't going to guess Anderson Wait, Silva. Is he sponsored by a Quaker bar or He something? loves cereal bar. It motivates him. <laughs> well, I, I myself have been motivated by a cereal bar from time to time, so I guess I can relate. <clears throat> All right. Tweet the fourth. I'm at the SoCal Extreme Showdown. What's happening at Invicta Fights? I'm touching to my PC. What? I'm touching to my PC. Huh. As written, sir. Huh. Well, okay. So somebody plugged in enough to know that Invicta's going on, um, and yet not somebody who proofreading tweets, uh, from what I can tell. Phil Baroni? Poet Philip Baroni? Could it be? There's no way that that's the poet Philip Baroni. It just doesn't have his characteristic panache. Well, I know, but I'm thinking Sir Nigel will be trying to trip us up here. So already, this has been the, the trickiest Master Tweet theater ever, I, I think. agree with that. I think after we totally slayed it last week, or two weeks ago, he decided to go and a little bit go into the deep tracks yeah. a little bit, the deep cuts. Yeah, up the level of difficulty. Uh, well, it sounds like a female fighter to me. So I'm going to guess Californian Misha Tate. Well, I, I can tell you you're wrong already because Misha Tate was at Invicta Fights. I Damn saw it. her there. Damn it. It is neither Phil Baroni nor his, now that I think about it, female counterpart, Misha Tate. <laughs> it is, in fact, Liz Carmouche. Oh, shit. See, Liz Carmouche was not at Invicta Fights. So you should have known that. Yeah, I should have known that. I guess I thought that with the touching to her PC, though, I guess I don't, I don't understand that. I assure you, only an actor of my caliber could be touching to a PC. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fifth, quote, The world breaks everyone, and afterwards many are strong at the broken places, end quote. Ernest Hemingway, a farewell to arms. Well, I think what we have here is another person on Twitter quoting a source text that they probably have not read. Yes. <laughs> Just because of what I know about Twitter and MMA fighters' use of Twitter. Um... So, in that name, I'm going to go ahead and say that it, this is one person we know who's been guilty of this before, Ring Girl Ariane Celeste. Wow, you think Ariane is breaking out Hemingway quotes? Just well, do you remember when you, you broke out the Emmanuel Kant quote, which then led uh, Sir Nigel to make a, a very tasteless joke? Oh, I remember. I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> that does not sound like me, sir. Um, my back is against the wall here, I guess. This being the last tweet, uh, the last chance to get one right. I guess I'm going to go with noted, out-of-place, out-of-context quoter, the poet Philip Baroni. 
Both tantalizing guesses, both wrong. God damn it. It is Henzo Gracie. Oh. Henzo Gracie who read A Farewell to Arms, assuming it was about his fight with Sakurama. Ooh, you've been working on that one all day. All you? day. He is stronger in that broken place, though. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, Henzo Gracie does love him some quotes, so I guess we shouldn't be too surprised. Well, Chad, I feel like uh, we were riding high after our last Master Tweets, and then yeah. Sir Nigel came in here and really stuck it to us. Yep, this one sent us both crashing back to Earth. Yeah. Well, I guess it's time we're going to go back to the, the drawing board, tweak some things, uh, and uh, see, see if we can come back better next time. So, Nigel, what have you got planned for the rest of the week? Funny, sh- funny you should ask, sir. As of tomorrow, I am going into rehearsals for the hip-hop version of Homer's classic epic, The Iliad. <laughs> I play Agamemnon, a stuffy old king who is banned rapping among the ancient Greeks. Dare I ask uh, how Iliad is stylized on the posters for this, this uh, production? Yes, sir. There is a hyphen. But there are actually two hyphens. It's actually Il-I-Ad. It's well, produced by Will-I-Am. See, that's where you go from, you know, dumb to clever is with the extra hyphen, I think. That's what I bring to the theater, sir. Indeed. Thank you, Sir Nigel, for stopping by. This has been Master Tweet Theater. So it seems that the demise of Antonio Bigfoot Silva was greatly exaggerated. After back-to-back losses to Daniel Cormier and Cain Velasquez, he had been, if not completely written off in the heavyweight division, I think regarded as a known commodity whose uh, prospects for the future had been dealt a fairly serious blow by those two defeats. Um, Ben, he came out and and ended up stopping kind of a hobbled Travis Brown in the first round of the main event of the UFC on FX5. So is this just another example of the dangers of what can happen when you book a fight where one guy is sort of obviously supposed to win? I thought you were going to say the dangers of throwing spinning shit. That too, frankly. That too. You go out there, you throw spinning shit, uh, and try and kick a dude in his knee... And it's like that knee karma catches up with you, or, or leg, or you know, tendon, uh, muscle karma. Boom, you blow one out, and uh, and then there you are limping around, waiting for Bigfoot to catch you on the chin. Yeah, it should be noted. Travis Brown came into this fight as light as he's ever been in the UFC. I think kind of tipping his hand to to the to what everybody probably already suspected, and that would be that he would come out and try to use his speed and athleticism to defeat uh, Bigfoot Silva, a guy who is enormous but at times has appeared plodding and slow. Um, and maybe that came back to bite Travis Brown in the ass a little bit. I don't know. He came out uh, through an overhand right that pushed Antonio Silva back, then threw, as Ben said, some spinning shit. And and then a front kick, and it's somewhere, he says, during that exchange, he tore his hammy. So, uh, yeah, he, he was probably not 100% for the rest of that. The rest of that um, I mean, he was definitely not 100 You could see him just kind of stumbling around in there. Yeah, it yeah. It did not look good, and it seemed like maybe he was still in the mode of, oh, shit, what do I do now when Bigfoot caught him? And, you know, that's how it goes with heavyweights. You get caught once, and it usually lights out after that. So, I don't know. I I really don't know what to make of this fight. I don't know what you do with, you know, where you put Bigfoot in your estimation after he goes out there and knocks out a dude who was limping around on one leg by the time he caught him. I mean, what does that even mean? I have no clue. Yeah, I don't either. It's... it's, uh... 
you know, especially since, as we alluded to at the beginning of the round, this kind of seemed like a fight where the point of it was to sort of uh, solidify Travis Brown's position in in the top 10 of the heavyweight division. You know, you saw Stefan Struve, a guy who Brown has previously defeated, uh, got a big win just six days before, and uh, that had sort of vaulted him into, I guess, mid-tier contender status. I think that the UFC is saying that he's he's top five, at least in that division, at least in that organization. I think that he is solidly at least top 10. Um, so you had to think that that Travis Brown here may have felt some uh, added urgency or, or, you know, that the stakes were raised a little bit just in terms of keeping up with the Joneses. And I think that it felt like the storyline for this fight was that Travis Brown comes out and beats Bigfoot Silva and uh, he kind of leapfrogs back over Stefan Struve and, and we kind of anoint him, you know... The, as part of that that same mid-level contender status. Uh, it didn't work out that way, obviously. Um, Travis Brown came in a little bit, something I think approaching a two-to-one favorite. But Ben, do you think that this is a case of Brown being overhyped or Bigfoot being underrated because of those two losses, admittedly to two guys who are probably, you know, top five or even top three? Yeah, that is the thing. This, I think, kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, where you don't exactly know what to make of a loss until you get to see the picture develop a little bit. This is definitely one of those situations because, yeah, you know, you get knocked out by Daniel Cormier, and then it turns out, you know, the more we see of Daniel Cormier, the more it seems like he is totally awesome. So, hey, no shame there. And you get you know, whole elbowed in your face by Cain Velasquez and end up choking on your own blood. Yeah, that, that's going to be a bad night for anybody. Anybody's going to look bad at that point. I still, I think the the weirdness of the way this bout ended, it just it kind of puts a a thing where you, you don't really know what to make for either guy. I mean, was Travis Brown overhyped? It seemed like maybe he got away from his own game a little bit there and just started to think like, hey, I'm this super fast athletic dude and I can do all kinds of crazy spinning shit and do whatever I want. And there's nothing Bigfoot can do about it. And in the process, kind of got himself hurt. That seems like maybe uh, a case of his his reach uh, overextending his grasp or there. You know, where you just don't know, though, does that it's not like Travis Brown sucks because he goes out there and blows his hammy and then gets hit on the chin. I mean, no, certainly not. I will say, though, that like in his previous UFC stint, he had not fought a lot of what you might consider to be enormous heavyweights. The biggest guy that he had fought prior to this bout with Stefan Struve and Stefan Struve is big, but he's more lanky than anything else. He's not the kind of massive heavyweight that, that Bigfoot Silva is. And aside from Struve, you know, the guys that, that Brown had fought, um, I believe he fought Chad Griggs and James McSweeney, who are both, you know, once in future light heavyweights. Uh, he fought, uh, Rob Broughton, the Englishman who, who's, you know, a big dude, but carries, a few too many of those pounds around his midsection. Some stones. A few too many stone around yeah. his midsection there. So uh, Travis Brown did come into this fight a big-time favorite, and he he did have a certain amount of hype behind him. But at the same time, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that we've seen him against these big, massive heavyweights, a guy like uh, like Bigfoot Silva. The, the other guy he fought was uh, Czech Congo, who is not small, but he's also like, you know, he's 6'4", 230. He's not... He's not 265. He's not cutting weight to get down to 266 like but Bigfoot he, Silva did are, prior to this are fight. Are we doing kind of like this, this revisionist history thing, though, where we were just talking about how, hey, Stefan Struve is really improving, coming along, and then we have a guy who pretty recently knocked out Stefan Struve, and we're like, oh, but he never really beat anybody. 
maybe we got ahead of ourselves on no, that. No, I'm point. not saying he didn't beat high quality opponents. I'm saying he hadn't fought the guy who presented a kind of physical test for him that Bigfoot Silva did. And I don't know if you saw that play out in the cage or not. I'm yeah, just mentioning I, that as another facet of the fight that that I don't see him because of the the way this went down. I don't see him losing this fight as as a sign that he failed the the physical test. I think that a lot of dudes might have been able to catch him there after he had hurt himself and was still kind of not he you could just tell after he had hobbled around there a couple times and realized I'm just not all there that then he just kind of backed up, you know, with his back against the fence and seemed to be still in that moment. You know, maybe if he had got a, if he'd been able to make it to the round and had a chance to think about it a little bit, maybe he could have gathered himself, but he still seemed to be in that mode of oh shit, now yeah. what? Yeah. Uh, and that's exactly when he got hit. So, uh I feel like this one, you know, I don't want to you know, you don't want to take it away from Bigfoot and be like, "Oh, you know, you didn't really do anything." Uh but at the same time, I'm not ready to make any determination about Travis Brown off that it's kind of it feels like you know a quarterback getting hurt in the the second quarter of a playoff game then being like oh this guy chokes under pressure like injuries are injuries you know I I I don't know I think this one is one where for both guys we're gonna have to wait and see more of them before we know what the hell this means to his credit you know Travis Brown came to the post-fight press conference and kind of did the uh professional athlete thing where he repeated a couple of times over that he didn't want to take anything away from Bigfoot Silva. The thing you say right before you try and take something away from the guy. Uh, well, somebody did ask him uh, how much the injury affected the outcome of the fight and he wouldn't even really address it. He just again said he, he didn't want to take anything away from Bigfoot. Yeah. That uh, is the athlete version of no disrespect. Yeah. Or, I will say know? that a couple minutes after that, I asked Bigfoot Silva a question and uh, as an aside, like when you know that you have to write a blog or, or a post or something about the main event fight, and you know that that's what you're in for, are you kind of like kind of like I am, where you're like, oh man, I hope the guy who speaks English wins. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I don't think I've ever thought it through that much. Because I asked Bigfoot Silva this question, which I think was the only question he got asked at the at the press conference, and he said, okay, I'm going to try to ask it in, or answer it in English. Which, you know, God bless him. I just certainly couldn't have asked the question in Portuguese where I called on to do so. But then, you know, he ends up saying stuff that you can't really understand, especially when you go back and listen to it on your on your digital recorder. And the quote that he ends up coming out with was, I knew it was kill or die, and I got the kill. Which, pretty much classic Brazilian translation there. Uh, and when he said that, Travis Brown, who's sitting on the other side of the of the table from him, and doing his best, obviously, to act cool and give Bigfoot Silva credit, just visibly rolled his eyes. Awesome. Like, holy shit, <laughs> what the fuck ever, man. <laughs> okay, well, here's the thing. I wonder sometimes, as long as we're getting into uh, the secret thoughts and feelings of journalists uh, covering these events, sometimes if you get a guy who's going to do the, the translation uh, for the non-English speaking fighter, and he does the translation as... You know, where he's just kind of trying to give you the gist of it. Where like, oh, he says, you know, he felt pretty good and he wanted to go in there and give his best. And, you know, because it's like, how do you use that quote then when he's referring to everything in the third person? Uh, you know, it's much better if you have a translator who is just going to do the straight up translating and, and adopt the, the first person there for the sake of the quote. Uh, that doesn't really help you out either. So, no, I, I don't no, know. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, well, before we move on to round... Uh, Round number three. We're in round two, right? 
Yeah. Oh, it's, it's been a whirlwind. This is why we need ring girls. To, <laughs> exactly. It's been such a whirlwind. I don't even know what round it is. Uh, but we will do the return of a recurring feature here on the podcast that we haven't done for a few weeks. Tips for the well-rounded fight fan, where Ben and I both mention uh, you know, something non-fight related that we have enjoyed that we feel that the audience will also enjoy. And it's a chance for you to, to spread your wings a little bit and, uh, and uh, experience stuff that ain't just fighting. Ben, uh, what, what do you have this week? What I have uh, kind of springs a, as a direct result out of my trip to Kansas City. Um, yeah, I feel like this trip to Kansas City has really affected you. It's really can't you see that I'm a changed man? Set you on a new path in life. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been reading a lot on my Kindle recently, uh, which was given to me as a gift by my mother-in-law. I didn't really think I would enjoy it, and it turns out I, I totally love it. Yeah. The one thing I don't really like, well, two things I don't like about it. One is that I, I feel like I don't have as much of a connection to who wrote the books because I'm not staring at the cover every day the way you are, you know, when you have it on your nightstand. And two, when you take it on the plane, you can't read it during takeoff and landing, which is when I really want to shut out other people. Right. Um, so I always have to bring some kind of printed matter to read during takeoff and landing. And as I was getting ready to leave on Friday morning and I was asking my wife if she had anything, you know, that she thought would be good for me to read. And she said, hey, we've got this book of essays that our friend Jason McMacken uh, recommended uh, called Pulphead. And it's a book of kind of it's an, I don't know if essays is even the right word because a lot of it is like journalism, basically, uh, and profiles of people. Uh, it's by John Jeremiah Sullivan. Uh, the title, again, is Pulphead. And it has like, profiles on Michael Jackson. There is an awesome one on Axl Rose. Absolutely fucking awesome. Uh, one on the last living member of the Whalers. Uh, just a ton of... To- one on like, going to a Christian rock festival. A ton of totally sweet ass shit. The dude is an awesome writer. Uh, Characterize one that I think really shows what an awesome writer he is. Talking about one of Axl Rose's childhood friends, he describes him as the kind of man who says "right on" a lot and not <laughs> "right on" um, as in "yes, I agree with you," but "right on" as in "hey, do you like to party?" Right on. Uh, then you know exactly what kind of dude he's talking about, which serves so much better than just a normal stock description. This dude is a hell of a writer, is what I'm saying. He takes some chances that could go, you know, either way at times. Uh, I respect that. It's a lot of fun to read, and he has awesome, you know, insights into pop culture stuff. Uh, if you are at all into, you know, nonfiction reporting or just straight up solid ass writing or, you know, stuff about Axl Rose, and if you're not into one of those things, I can't believe you're a fan of this podcast. Uh, go pick up Pulphead by John Jeremiah Sullivan. You will not be sorry you did. And you can read off, read it during takeoff and landing if you get the book version. Right on. Right on, man. Yeah. Uh, as fate would have it, I will also recommend a nonfiction book this week. The book that I am going to recommend for you is The Lost City of Z by David Gran. Uh, David Gran is a staff writer at The New Yorker and um, actually writes a lot of the stories in The New Yorker that I that I enjoy, the stories that I feel like are a little bit more accessible to the, to the average dude. Um, and this book is about the author traveling to South America to try to find out what happened to uh, British explorer Percy Fawcett, who disappeared in the Amazon in 1925 while he was on an expedition to try to find this lost city of Z, a city of gold out in the jungle. Did um, he find it? Well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm <laughs> okay. going to I'm going to leave that to the uh to the book itself. The book kind of jumps back and forth in time between, you know, one chapter will be about David Grant going to South America to try to figure out what happened to to Percy Fawcett and then the other next chapter will be kind of drawn from these diaries of of Percy Fawcett that 
David Grand unearthed. Um, and it's a, it's a great book. It's out in paperback now, so you won't have to shell out too much money for it. And it's sort of about how sweet it used to be to be an explorer, but also about all of the horrible, disgusting shit that would happen to you if you ventured into the Amazon during the early 20th century. So, or even now, probably. Even now, yes. The Lost City of Z by David Graham is my recommendation. How come nobody... Everybody's always looking for a lost city of gold and shit. How come nobody's ever like... Uh, this all copper city or you know city of city of amethyst that is a good question i yeah. don't know i mean i guess if you're going to look for a lost city you might as well shoot for the top right you don't want to shoot for the i'm just saying you'd think if it's for the a, bronze a, you don't want to city search for the lost city of bronze city right made entirely of gold you'd kind of think people would keep a closer eye on it anyway that's tips for a well-rounded fight fan uh coming up in just a few minutes moments really seconds away round three Round three. Speaking of my adventures in Kansas City, chat, this Saturday night, fight card went down from Memorial Hall in Kansas City, Kansas. Invicta's third event of the year, third event of their existence. Uh, another good little fight card. Uh, all female, 14 fights, goes down, live streams on the web for free. Uh, I assume you didn't watch it because you're a terrible, terrible sexist. I absolutely did watch it. I don't it. believe you. I watched I don't it believe you because why on earth, after being away from the family for four days, would I want to spend Saturday night with my wife and infant daughter uh, when the premier mixed martial arts promotion in the world invicta fc was putting on a uh, a live streamed event there yeah. on the internet good point so I, I absolutely did watch it so boom in your face well here's the thing maybe you can get into a little bit of your impressions from the broadcast side of it one of the reasons i wanted to go uh and i have a huge really long article uh, very in-depth about all different facets of it up on mma junkie right now that people can read um, that kind of details a little bit more of my mission in going there. But one of the things I wanted to see is Invicta seems to be gaining a little bit of buzz now. Uh, it's still unclear to me whether this can work, an all-female fight car, and whether you can just kind of start this up and, and gain enough traction and, and you know, get something going where it can actually be financially sustainable. Um, there's a part of me that feels like it should be able to work. I would really like to, to stick around. They're paying the fighters better money than they're going to get elsewhere. Uh, you know, talk to one of the prelim fighters who made 15, 15, you know, three grand wow. for, and she was the second fight. It was her pro debut. Um, second fight on the card. And, you know, I mean, that's, and the main eventers are making, you know, three and three or four and four. Uh, all the managers I talked to were saying, Hey, hope this thing sticks around. Um, but right now they're losing money because how can you not when you're giving it away for free on the web and you're in a, a venue that only holds 3,500 people and you're not selling it out. Um, so I kind of wanted to see, is this a for real thing? Uh, I mean, I guess one of the things I keep coming back to is this conflicted feeling I have where I want this to be something that MMA fans care enough about to support uh, and to, to help sustain. But just kind of wanting that in a theoretical way isn't enough. And I wonder, I mean, do you see there being the day? I mean, I think they're probably going to look for a TV deal. They're getting good enough numbers on the web that they can, they, I know that they've attracted interest and had conversations with several different cable TV networks. 
when you think about this thing and think about what you saw on Saturday night, do you see this sticking around? I, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, in terms of the product, I think it's very good. I think that their uh, their production values are, are pretty solid for a smaller promotion. Um, you know, just in terms of like the camera work and and the announcing, it's it's all it's all pretty good. And I actually feel like the all female cards are better than when you try to mix it up in a way. You know, kind of it gives it sort of like a cohesive feeling that that I think really adds to, to sort of the momentum of the broadcast. I feel like it's it, doing that is better than trying to mix between male and female fights. And sometimes it feels a little bit disjointed and, and uh, you know, it leads the commentators to say ridiculous sexist <laughs> shit. Like these girls always steal the show or whatever. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that from the female fighter perspective, several of them told me that when you are one of the one or two fights, female fights on a mostly male-dominated card, it's easier to stand out. Mm-hmm. People are going to remember you a little bit more. It's harder to stand out when there's fucking 14 fights, which is too many fights. Right. And it seems like Shannon Knapp, the president of Invicta, knows it because I pressed her on why 14 fights for these things. Um, she said she was going to try and limit this one to 10, but you know, there's not that many options for female fighters, and they keep calling her up and saying give me a fight. Let me fight on this card, you know? So, and I mean, that's her explanation for it anyway. And, uh, that, that she didn't want to tell him no. So she keeps giving him fights. Uh, at the same time though, you know, the, like, as you said, having that kind of like cohesiveness on it, it makes it difficult for, for them to, to stick out maybe, but it also though gives work to maybe, and gives more exposure, uh, for all the female fighters, rather than if you're just going to pick a couple to fight, uh, from what you know, Shannon told me, and from what uh, you know, she, uh, Micah Fromowitz, the former Strikeforce PR guy who does the PR for Invicta, is kind of backing her up on this. That when Strikeforce was going to do it and saying, "Hey, let's get a female fight," when you're only going to do one on a card, then it's, and you know, you have the the Showtime executives behind you. It's get us a pretty girl, right. you know, yeah. get, get us somebody like that. Get us some, get us one of the popular girls, um, just to, to put her in there, rather than you know, get us some of the best fighters around. So this gives a, a better like cross section of what women's MMA looks like across multiple divisions, rather than you know just sticking 135 pounds. Let's find a pretty girl in a sports bra that we can stick out there, um, you know, in between two other male fights. Yeah, uh, that is a really different thing. And it's smart of them, I think, to highlight the atom weight division to because it's a division that might not be immediately absorbed by the UFC and or strike force. So like you know, I feel like. If Invicta spends a lot of time building up 135 and 145 pound stars, those stars are just going to graduate to the UFC or Strikeforce. But you know, at those atom weight uh, uh, class where the and where the fights were were pretty darn good, um, I feel like that's a, a an opportunity for them to add a product you know that the that is not already being offered by someone with higher production values. Now to speak a little bit to I think your original question, do I think it's sustainable? I think that the product itself of the all-female fight card is definitely sustainable. And I feel like the fact that Invicta FC gets a lot more attention than uh, any other kind of smaller independent promotion whose fights so far are only available on on the internets uh, speaks to that. I would hesitate, though, to throw my confidence behind any, like, small MMA promotion 
like what they do is go out of business. Yeah. That's what they do. But as I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, if the UFC or Zufa is really serious about female fighting or if the tide is starting to turn a little bit in terms of how the, the upper management there views female fighting, which it feels like it is a little bit, I feel like they would be smart to buy Invicta and kind of just turn that into a UFC product, which I'm kind of... I've kind of always felt that that was things that they should do instead of trying to control these separate brands. Like, you know, they have strike force and they have the UFC. Why not just rebrand this existing product as, you know, UFC something else. So UFC you have- with like the, the female sign. Next yeah. To it. And the letters could be pink. And yeah. But it would be like the female sign would be like, like an, uh, an exponent. You are an un- right. unbelievable sexist. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, here's the thing I was thinking about as far as, like, from the practical financial side. When I was talking to Tisha Torres, the tiny tornado, who was telling me about how she made three grand to, to win on the prelims. Uh, and then I thought about how Shannon Knapp had told me how the ticket prices were pretty reasonable inside the Memorial Hall, that the front row floor seats were 100 bucks. Uh, floor seats behind that were 50 and then you know 25 up in the the general admission bowl section you know uh, how many floor seats do you have to sell just to pay Tisha Torres just to fly her out from Florida from ATT where she trains give her a hotel room for a few days like once you start doing the math on some of this stuff uh, and then think about the how they have a stream that they don't know how to monetize right now uh, a small venue that because they keep running in the same city over and over again that they're not going to sell out. Like, I wonder how much of it right now is novelty value, you know? Some of it, but I feel like uh, even if that's true, even if the thing that is drawing the eyeballs is novelty, I feel like the product is good enough to sustain it because, um, you know, when you actually sit down and watch it, the vast majority of those fights are entertaining. Yeah, no, and that, that was the thing, you know, out of 14 fights... Not one where I was like, okay, that's a bad fight, or this is just a you know painful one to sit through. They did get lucky, I think, in that how many of the fights ended relatively quickly or ended in the first round. Uh, because if you put 14 fights on the card and you know 10 of them go to decision, you're in for a long damn haul. You know that that one is going to get old, and that's going to happen eventually if you keep putting that many fights on the card. Yeah. Uh, but you know, when you when you watch them and you just watch it for sheer performance value, and it's not, I think before we would say like, oh, hey, there's not enough depth. And okay, I guess that's true at the actual elite level, but I feel like there's this thing going on where people are like, well, there's no one who seems like an obvious favorite to beat Ronda Rousey, therefore there's no depth. That's not the same thing, yeah. you know? Just be, like, it's like, it's like saying, you know, is there no depth at uh, light heavyweight just because it doesn't look like there's anybody who can beat John Jones right now? Like, there's still a lot of depth. You look around at the other weight classes and, you know, you're watching some of these fighters fight, like watching, uh, like, Barb Honchak, uh, who's flyweight, who won a decision. You watch her move around the cage and watch the way she fights. I don't know how you can look at her and be like, oh, no, she's not a very good fighter. There's nobody out there. that There's, there's no... There's only one or two good female fighters out there. I mean, that's a, that's a good fight. You watch Selena Baser fight. Yeah. That is a just good fucking say, fighter. I feel like across the board, there's a lot of talent uh, in Invicta. And, and like, even if you just look at the bantam weights that they have, you saw, um, Shayna Baszler fight on, uh, on this, on this card. And she fought, uh, Sarah McMahon. Is that, did I say that right? You mean on the last card? On the last card. Yeah. Yeah. She fought her on the last card. And I thought, you know, deserved to win the the decision there. I thought so too. And in fact, when, when I'm watching this, this week's, you know, this most recent card, 
watching Shayna Baszler kind of handle her business on the ground. Just stomping on her ankle. Yeah. Stomping on Sarah Delilio's ankle. That's just mean, I man. Even, I even thought to myself, man, it would be interesting to watch Shayna Baszler fight Ronda Rousey yeah. because, you know, we don't know what happens to Ronda Rousey when she's not just able to armbar someone in two seconds. Yeah. For all we know, she might turn into Mark Coleman, you know, <laughs> and turn deep purple on us and just not even be able to lift her arms anymore. Note about Shayna Baszler, who I... Uh, talked to very briefly after the end of the fight card after watching her mean ass performance of stomping on Sarah Delilio's ankle and then just talking to her for uh, you know a few moments after the fight I get the sense that Shayna Baszler is the type of person who routinely finds herself walking into a room looking around at the other people in it and thinking bunch of fucking pussies no matter where she is I think she walks into a biker bar and is still thinking that that she seems like just a a tough I don't want to say mean-spirited in a bad way but, like, she, she enjoys her work, uh, especially when her work is hurting people out there. Uh, and to be, like, technically sound, like, she could be scary to, <laughs> to a lot of people out there. I also think, though, I mean, you look, like, that Leslie Smith, Caitlin Young bout. Mm-hmm. One that was the, another great fight. One of the things that the live stream aspect uh, advantage that it gives you is you really get to see... It's not... Because it's one thing, like, with TV ratings where you're, like... You know, one person represents a larger sample and that kind of stuff. And you're kind of like guessing based on that, like making an educated guess. With internet stuff, you know, you know exactly how many people are clicking on your articles or your videos and where they're coming from and, you know, what part of the world they're in and how long they stay. Uh, that advantage, you know, talking to the people doing the stream for Invicta, uh, the most watched Invicta fight to date, uh, from what they tell me, was the first Leslie Smith Caitlin Young fight on the mm. first Invicta card. And that the second one was the most watched on this fight card. But wow. it seems like you can definitely see that this is the fight that really brings people in. Um, and I think when you look at that, obviously there's more than there's more appeal than just the Ronda Rousey's and Gina Cronos. I mean, obviously they're kind of at the apex there, but that doesn't mean that after that it's just a fucking wasteland. I mean, you can do something with some of these fighters. Yeah, no, I agree. I hope that they figure out a way to monetize their stream. I think that. You know, maybe if you even just charge a dollar for it and you and you pull, you know, the numbers they're quoting are crazy for the for the amount of, of viewers they get. But yeah, I mean, I mean if, and if but if the numbers are accurate and you charge a dollar and you get half that, that's still awesome. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I wonder what it would do if you even charge just a dollar, if it would if it would go down by more than half, because I think a lot of it is. And this is one of the things where people I talked to said a lot of people, you know, from MMA media colleagues had said, I think that's a crazy number. There's no way that they're outdrawing, you know, Fuel TV uh, live events, even though not that many people get Fuel TV, but still. Um, But then when you think about all you need to do is get somebody to click on a link once and stay for, you know, a second to get to count them on that tally. And over the course of four hours, with that link getting passed around on Twitter, and again, here's where we get into that kind of like echo chamber quality of Twitter where, you know, Misha Tate has 60-something thousand followers she shows up to invicta and tweets about it all night you know uh she tells her followers about it eventually they retweet it they start talking about it the people that they follow or the people that follow them you, know, you get people clicking out of it because it's just a curiosity and it's free so hell why the hell not even if you click on it and as soon as you realize what it is you think you don't want to watch it boom you're still added to the tally yeah, so yeah uh, that is something to keep in mind there however i mean i th- one of the big dangers i think is that there's going to be some Cable TV networks courting Invicta. I think there already are several of them. 
You want to get into the right deal here because getting into the wrong TV deal as an upstart organization has killed more than one MMA organization because once you start, you lose a lot of your independence once you get into that deal and you got to make sure you're doing it right because you might not get a second chance at it. Yeah, good point. Uh, Well, let's do just saying stuff and uh, then we'll get out of here since we're already running up on time. Uh, I guess I'll just go first. Uh, My just saying stuff is that I'm just saying I want my old Jason Mayhem Miller back. Uh, there's, you know, we talked about it on the podcast several weeks ago that there was con- some concern about the guy following, uh, his UFC release and all that. Uh, at this point he appears to have entered into some kind of strange and, uh, poorly reasoned viral marketing campaign for here comes the boom, uh, the movie where he, he has changed his Twitter to the name of the character that he plays on in the movie, lucky Patrick and showed up on the MMA hour today, acting odd and uh, appearing to try to play the character lucky Patrick. Uh, and you know, uh, I hope I speak for more than just myself when I say I want my old Jason mayhem Miller back. I'm just saying, yeah, well, a poignant just saying here from from Chad Dundas. It's not all going to be apple pie and, and, and fun and games around here, man. You know, sometimes we, we have to, has to be a little bit poignant. I'm just saying that now that Mo Lawal is a pro wrestler, and I assume that he is either working on or thinking about or has already developed and, and settled on some sort of finishing move, as you have to do when you're a pro wrestler, Please, God, don't let it be one of the finishing moves where it's just a normal move, but you do something weird beforehand, and that's supposed to make it somehow more devastating. Looking at you, The Rock, with the people's elbow. Uh, Also looking at the Texas Tornado from back in the day. I'm just saying, if you're gonna have this MMA fighter try and bring, like, oh, hey, he's this realistic badass, this MMA fighter... Let him do a, a finishing move that's at least somewhat realistic that it might hurt somebody. Don't try and sell me on an elbow drop as somehow more devastating if you say something first before you do the elbow drop. I'm just saying. He's just saying. That's the show for this week. We'll be, be, we'll be back next week, uh, probably wrapping up UFC 153, I would think. Uh, Unless it doesn't happen because everybody gets kidnapped by a drug cartel, which is the way the UFC seems to be headed with those terrible at bad At this luck. point, I would not have a hard time believing that. That's the show for this week. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's been folks from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. We are done. We are out. I don't think that there's any way that Mola Walk doesn't use the ankle lock for his finishing move, right? I mean, that's what Angle did. That's like the ankle lock is what you give your badass MMA slash submission guy. That's his finishing move. I mean, I'll settle for Boston Crab, you know? Something. Texas Cloverleaf. Give me something. Did you go for a Texas Cloverleaf? Yeah, maybe one of those kind of things like where it's like a...